Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. Latham & Watkins Chair Bill Vogie resigned on Tuesday, the culmination of a tumultuous relationship with a woman unconnected to the firm. At first, the pair exchanged sexually charged text messages, but things spiraled into mutual accusations of harassment and intimidation, along with threats of legal action. Law360 broke open the story with exclusive reporting by Sam Reisman, who will join us later in the show to share all the details on how the story unfolded. And later on, we'll end the show talking about Lindsay Lohan's new gig for a lawyer referral site. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Guys, we've got a jam-packed show today. Lots to talk about. But before we get to that stuff, I want to bring up Alex's plans tonight. Oh, what what are those? Yeah. Well... I- I mean, do you want me to say it, or are you going to tell everyone? Well, we, we had a show a couple weeks ago about uh, about a lot of movies. We did, and, and one that Alex and I are quite fond of is uh, is the film The Fugitive. Oh, yeah. sure. Uh, and and we didn't find a way to talk about it. It's sort of tangent. I mean, it's about the law. Obviously, he's he's on the run from the law. There's a single not... courtroom scene that is the, uh, uh, an entire trial and sentencing is distilled to about twenty seconds, I believe. Right. Yes. So. Why don't you why don't you give the listeners uh I'm going to a repertory screening of the fugitive tonight at the Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn. Nice. It's a classic Alamo thing, like a yeah. good old movie. I had this was the first time in history I actually saw like one of those ad, those targeted ads on Facebook oh, sure. and actually clicked through and purchased a good or service. Uh and I was gonna I I was gonna get two tickets to take my friend Bill. Right. I I jumped in there and literally got the last seat. I'm very the good, excited. The good news is I didn't kill my wife. And <laughs> and the bad news is I don't care. Oh, guys, that was great. And you mentioned Facebook, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But first, Bill, I think you want to talk about some big music news on your beat this week. Yeah. Uh, At long last, we we got a ruling in the Blurred Lines case, which is, um, you know, it's a fun case to talk about, but it's arguably the biggest and probably the most controversial music copyright case in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. So um, on Tuesday, two years after a verdict that... Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams had infringed Marvin Gaye's Got to Give It Up uh, with their 2013 chart topper, Blurred Lines. Mm -hmm. The Ninth Circuit affirmed the verdict, and it was a ruling. It was an interesting ruling, then we'll talk about it, but it came with this really scathing dissent that said, you know, that it was dangerous and everything else. So it was a big day yesterday. So let's just rewind a little bit. Remind people what happened with that 2013 ruling. Yeah. Because that's sort of the basis of what got upheld. So when Blurred Lines came out, early 2013 um it quickly became the biggest song of that year and it was the biggest song of that year but a lot of people when they heard it they said uh uh, this kind of sounds like that marvin gay song you know the one that's in all the commercials the got to give it up and they weren't totally wrong about that let's play uh blurred lines first the summer of 2013 back Still in Still a banger. Yeah, my I, God. I kind of hate that I like that song, cool. guys. Uh, that's a bop right there, Amber. You but have so, no, nothing to be ashamed of. Sorry. So now let's listen to Got to Give It Up, which everyone will remember. Hey, 
and now we're at the pool party in Boogie Nights. So everyone... <laughs> if nothing else, I feel really good about talking about this case because it's fun to listen to those songs. Yeah, so when those came out, it was pretty... They, they, they do sound yeah, similar. I'm, I'm not a musicologist, but so, on its face. Yeah. Gay's kit... So, and there were there were interviews where, where Pharrell and Thicke both said that, like, you know, we, we were, like, sort of channeling Marvin Gaye and we wanted... Like, we were... It was an homage. Evocative of a, yeah, of a yeah, sound. Yeah, evocative. Mm-hmm. So, but Marvin Gaye's kids thought otherwise and they threatened a lawsuit. So, um, Thick and Pharrell went to court and filed this preemptive lawsuit to prove that they hadn't done anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to 2015. A lot of ugly litigation between the two sides, arguing, sort of splitting hairs about what, what was the copyright, what did the copyright cover, everything else. There was a ugly deposition video of, of, of Robin Thick, But we get to this trial, star-studded trial, they go on the stand, everything else. Jury comes back with a verdict that they had, in fact, infringed the Marvin Gaye song. Okay, so, so like Alex just said, these kind of sound similar. This all seems on the up and up. Why is this well, so splashy? Well, and, if, and they we've agreed to that, and like, but we've talked about a, like a, a couple different instances of this. Why was this case like such a? Why, why did it get so much traction? Right. So after the verdict, a bunch of both music people and both and copyright people yeah. came out and said they they sort of sounded the alarm on this verdict, and they said that like. Sure, the songs do sound similar, but they don't share these concrete sort of things like melody or harmony or rhythm that have traditionally constituted copyright infringement. So the idea, the fear for these people, the the people who really didn't like this verdict, was that the jurors and the court that allowed the jurors to, you know, that had entered the, the verdict as a judgment, had allowed gays kids to claim copyright to almost a whole genre, a whole style, this this general groove sound that that they had taken that definitely it sounds it sounds like the same song, mm-hmm. but that if you allow people to claim these these century long copyrights on sort of amorphous ideas without hard cutoffs to where they where they end, it, it'll stifle creativity. And the, and and the so music much is built music, on... Yeah, exactly. So much music is built on inspiration. I mean, ex- how many times have you listened to some interview with your favorite recording artist and the very first question they're asked is, oh, who are you inspired by for your new yeah, album? Your totally. Yeah. There are genre conventions. There, there, there are ideas of like what, what works in a, in a genre that if you start locking those up with one person controls them... It stops people from making new songs or, yeah. or it stifles their creativity. And it also leads to this kind of like rent seeking behavior by people who are filing these lawsuits that now maybe are 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 legitimate. So um, and that led to there was this brief when it was before the Ninth Circuit that 200 different musical artists, some of them prominent, said that that like this is this, quote, very dangerous to the musical community and certain to stifle future creativity. So a lot of people really didn't like this verdict. So how did they end up affirming it? Yeah. So that that brings us back to yeah. this week where it was, in fact, <laughs> if, it was, if it was so bad. Yeah. Right. So the, the ruling was this super procedural and super deferential mm-hmm. ruling where they, they made this this, you know, we sat here and talked about, or at least I did for two years about what this what this ruling <laughs> yeah. might be. And the court essentially punted on all those those questions of actually comparing the songs and whether or not they, what they did was they said that based on the procedural posture, because this followed a jury trial and mm-hmm. that we're in appellate court, we can't pick and choose what evidence and what testimony the jurors heard. They heard competing arguments from these different musicologists. They 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 heard the songs. We there wasn't a bold enough error here for mm-hmm. us to overturn this. So it. it it affirmed it, but it didn't really dig into any of these issues. All right. We've set up a pretty bleak picture here where they left this in place and all of these musicians hate it. Is all the bad stuff going to happen now? 
it's hard to say at this point because so the ruling, as I just said, didn't it didn't substantively assess this idea of like this expansion of copyright. It wasn't this like sweeping proclamation of law. So in that way, it's pretty limited to what like the facts of this case. Mm hmm. But there was, the, as I mentioned up top, there was this this scathing dissent oh, yeah. from uh, Judge Jacqueline Wen, who wrote um, that that quote. By refusing to compare the two works, the majority establishes a dangerous precedent that strikes a devastating blow to future musicians and composers everywhere. Hmm. She said that that the majority, by by leaning on these uh, sort of procedural reasons for why they didn't have to dig into this, had allowed the gays to sort of de facto claim a copyright to this to this musical style. So um, and for the people that I talked to after this ruling came out, they said sort of the same thing that effectively de facto people are going to see this and say, well, like I can it's worth a shot. So they're going to we're going <laughs> right. to see more litigation going forward from folks like this, where maybe traditionally it wouldn't have been copyright infringement, but they see what what Marvin Gaye's kids won in this case and maybe it's worth a shot so we might see some more music lawsuits but we're also going to see some lawsuits against facebook because of big news they've had happen yeah they've, they've been in the news yeah so if you haven't heard i mean i think most people probably have um political data firm cambridge analytica was using facebook to mine private data from millions of unwitting americans and creating these detailed voter profiles mm -hmm. and cambridge analytica was um had some ties to the Trump campaign in 2016. So the news of this data misuse has been all over the place. And I just wanted us to touch down on it because there's a lot of legal entrails that sort of spill out of this. First of all, I thought Cambridge Analytica was one of those CD-ROMs you get when you buy Windows 95. <laughs> uh, so I don't know how they got mixed up in this. That's where I learned about the Industrial Revolution. Some guy pops up. He's like, let me tell you about the Holy Roman Empire. Okay? <laughs> no, anyway. Okay, so they got into this data turmoil. What's going on here? Did it, did, did, is Facebook... Do they, is, is this a breach or are we looking at data breach lawsuits like we so talk about a lot? Facebook vehemently insists this is not an actual breach. Yeah, they haven't used the word. Yeah. yeah. So they say that it's not a breach because no one hacked into the system. Right. Instead, it was this researcher hired by Cambridge Analytica that convinced about uh, 270,000 Facebook users to take a quiz. So you know the ones, guys. Like We've you're all on done Facebook. Them. Yeah. yeah. And people are now second guessing doing those because... They signed in to take this quiz. It was a psychological testing app. And Cambridge Analytica was harvesting data from that from the people that took the quiz, but also all of their friends on Yikes. Facebook. So that balloons the number up to 50 million people who oh were impacted God. here. But so did those people, uh, did they consent to doing it? Like, the did people they know? who took the quiz yeah. consented to all the terms that are just sort of it, hidden to, in to there the that you just you click on. To the extent you consent to stuff like that. Sure. And, um, yeah. but, but, yes. but the Facebook friends had no idea. So what we're left with here is that Facebook is insisting on not calling this an actual data breach because that would trigger some other problems for Facebook. They would have been required to notify various states that have data security laws. So they're trying to be very clear that this wasn't an official breach. But even if they're not using the word, I have to think that regulators are going to be looking at this. People are going to be digging into whether or not any wrongdoing yeah. happened here. They're not going to die on the semantic hill here. <laughs> yeah, and it really is mostly semantic here. <laughs> right. um, we basically wrote uh, an analysis. Ben Kochman, our senior cybersecurity and privacy reporter, yeah. looked into this. And and, and looked no real matter, handsome on CBS News talking about it. He did. He talked about this. Yeah. So he basically wrote a story that said that no matter what Facebook calls this, you can call it a breach or a misuse of data, whatever, that 
the FTC is going to look into this here. He spoke to FTC officials, he right? Did. Former, he, he sorry. He spoke to yeah. two former FTC officials, and they said that Facebook likely um, violated a promise to get express consent from users before sharing their data in mm-hmm. this way. And that was part of a 2011 um, consent degree Facebook had entered into with the FTC when they'd had previous issues surrounding privacy of user data. Yeah, there's all there data issues have been in the in the Facebook ether since the company began, basically. And so with regard to this specific thing, Assuming regulators start poking around, what kind of action could they be facing? Man, well, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, for one, has already come out and he said it was, a, quote, a breach of trust between Facebook. After like four days of silence. Wait a he second. Did, he did wait a while. <laughs> a breach of what now? <laughs> Let's get on the same page here, Zuck. So, no. so he said it was a breach of trust that yes. Facebook should fix it. Um, but there's a lot of things that are going to spin out of this. First is that they could face really steep fines if the FTC does find that they violated that consent decree. Right. Yeah. The agency can issue fines of up to $40,000 per violation. Whoa. So that adds up really fast with something this big. Well, and big. the thing with the FTC is it doesn't it's it's pretty lightly staffed. So like finding small violations is a hard thing, but when there's when yeah. there's this very clear thing that happened, yeah. And it's gone after other companies in the past. In 2015, they went after that ID theft protection firm LifeLock. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that company settled with the agency for $100 million. Yeah. But LifeLock is no Facebook, guys. Facebook no. is so much bigger that you can imagine that this could spiral into sure. uh, just a huge sum if that's the way it goes. I have to imagine that uh, private litigation could also result, right? Well, we're on the Pro Se podcast, yeah. so litigation <laughs> always ensues. Yeah, uh, We've already had a few. We've had shareholders and some Facebook users have started suits about misuse of this data and negligence and how it was handled. So we're going to see probably quite a few of those. But the greatest threat for Silicon Valley, as always, is the the the, the dreaded fear that they would be regulated like other industries. How dare they be regulated? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> that... like the fourth branch of government, the, 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 <laughs> the regulatory branch. Guys, it's always unclear when we bring up regulation on the podcast whether or not this will actually come to pass. Yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of people saying that this just sort of puts on full display how much personal data they actually have. I mean, just to put it in perspective, it's about 60% of the U.S. population is on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. So it's really a repository for more information about Americans than almost anything else. So if they have that much data in their system, a lot of people are now raising the alarm bells and the calls on Capitol Hill to regulate them more closely. On Tuesday, Latham & Watkins Chair Bill Vogie resigned after engaging in a pattern of reckless behavior. It began with sexually explicit text messages sent to a woman he approached on behalf of a Christian men's group, and it culminated in threats to her husband to have her thrown into jail. The resignation was a shock to the legal world. Latham is one of the most prestigious firms in the world, and Vogie was the chairman when it became the first one to break the $3 billion in revenue mark. What toppled this law firm leader? Senior reporter Sam Reisman is with us to take us behind the scenes of his exclusive reporting on the scandal. Welcome, Sam. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Sam, I'm really glad you're here because this story has a lot of moving parts. And it's just not every day that the leader of such a profitable law firm steps down amid a scandal. So can you tell us exactly what happened? You're right. It is a really unusual story. Um, So Bill Vogie resigned on Tuesday, and it was the culmination of uh, a months-long dispute uh, between him and a woman uh, whom he met, first met in September of last year. 
Vogie was introduced to this woman uh, in his capacity as a board member uh, on the New Canaan Society, which is a group that facilitates meetings for Christian men. This woman was not connected to the firm in any way. He was brought in to uh, facilitate what was termed a Christian reconciliation between this woman and a member of the of the New Canaan Society group. Um, but the relationship evolved from there to the point where uh, in mid-November, uh, over a course of a, a few days, the he and the woman exchanged a series of uh, explicit uh, sexual text messages, which were consensual in nature. So, so far we've got this tale of a woman not connected with the firm, and all they've done is text. Did they ever meet up in person? So they never met in person, and they've still never met in person. Um, but so, but even though the relationship uh, at that point in mid-November was consensual, uh, the woman said that Vogie took things too far by trying to get her to his, to come to his hotel room, and that's where things really turn south. Okay, so she says that that's when it was sort of a bridge too far. He asked her to come to the hotel room, and then what what happened after that? What did what did she do? She began telling her side of the story to a number of people in Vogie's life, including uh, board members at the New Canaan Society, uh, Vogie himself, and uh, co- his colleagues at Latham and Watkins. So at this point, Vogie severed contact with the woman and retained an attorney named Terry Eckel to represent him in the dispute. On November 30th, Terry Eckel sent this woman a cease and desist, uh, outlining a number of cyber harassment laws she was alleged to have violated, and saying, stop contacting Vogie and his colleagues, or there will be criminal and civil penalties. But now, so clearly, that's not where the story ends. So what happens after that? Sure. So the woman continues to share her side of the story with a number of people in Vogie's life, including uh, other partners at Latham and Watkins, uh, attorneys at Kirkland and Ellis, um, other members of the board at New Canaan Society, and it 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 has this continues through the end of January. Um, throughout this, she has maintained that Vogie and Eckel tried to intimidate her into silence, mm-hmm. and for their part, Vogie and Eckel have always maintained that he has been the victim of a relentless and hostile campaign to smear his reputation and publicly humiliate him. But, so there's these two mutual accusations of harassment. But now his response to to this is where. Is, is another turn in this story, right? Sure. So even though he cuts off contact with her at the end of November, he is later in contact with at least one family friend and also the woman's husband. So Sam, I mentioned up top that this culminated in um, Vogie talking about threats to watch her be arrested and, and hauled off to jail. How did we get there? Uh, so he was communicating with her husband via text and in these text messages, his tone varies from being apologetic to being a bit more threatening, where he acknowledges that it was a mistake what went down between him and her in November, but also alleging that she has committed numerous felonies by contacting these people in his life. And he says she's going to jail and that he's going to travel to personally witness the arrest. Jeez. Yeah, so it got pretty ugly there. So we're going to talk about what happened this week, but let's back up for a second and get sort of the 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 behind the scenes story of how you worked on this story and how you know how it came to you and how you dug into it. Sure, we began working on this story about 2 weeks ago, um, about a week and a half before Vogie resigned. Um, it was a, an enormous undertaking. There were dozens and dozens of emails and texts uh, and documents that we had to review. Um, there were a number of allegations that we had to vet and try to verify the details uh, you know, as much as we could. And just so our listeners know, you saw these text messages that were in question. You were able to review all that material. Sure, yeah. And uh, you know, it wasn't just me. There was a team of editors working on this, uh, making sure that every detail in it was, could be confirmed. So I'm sure you did your due diligence and reached out to Latham. Now, was 
was your reporting, your inquiry, what brought this to their attention, this situation? No, the firm had been aware of this since December of last year. And we okay. know that from the documents that we reviewed, that their general counsel had been looking into this. And um, even in their statement uh, that accompanied Vogie's resignation, uh, they acknowledged that Vogie had made a series of voluntary disclosures uh, yeah. about this matter. So they had, they had already, they were already aware of it. And his resignation is actually kind of one of the more colorful parts of your whole reporting process. I know that that kind of came and was at a particularly fraught moment in the reporting of the story. Tell us about that. We were all a bit blindsided by it. So I'm just going to back up a bit and say when I reached out to Latham, I also reached out to Bill Vogie himself and yeah. called him on his cell mm. phone uh, to uh, see if I could get his his take on these allegations. He directed me to the firm's general counsel, who in turn directed me to Terry Eckel, who was Vogie's uh, attorney, who was representing lawyer. him personally yeah. in this mm -hmm. matter. So Terry Eckel flew out to New York and met with us in the Law 360 office, and it was me, him, my editor, Carrie Ben, and managing editor, uh, Ian Toms, mm -hmm. and basically dumped on us printouts, uh, hundreds of pages of printed out email correspondence between him and this woman, stretching back months, uh, sort of laying out the whole, the whole dispute. Um, and he basically made the argument that, you know, what has always been their argument, which is that this woman has engaged in a, a campaign to harass uh, Vogie. And that was sort of his point of view. And we met for about 30, 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. And at that point, the story was still um, taking shape. We had uh, um, reams of material that he had dropped on our door. And a literal had, document yeah. dump, printed <laughs> out documents exactly, on the table. Exactly. And, and, we, and we knew it was like, OK, so the, the next step in the story is we're going to sit down, sure. make a big pot of coffee and go through all this. Literally minutes after we shake hands and say goodbye, I received the email from Latham that uh, Bill Vogie has suddenly resigned. Yeesh. And it's it's not some vague allusion to personal reasons. It's very specifically the matter that we had been inquiring about. Right. That really snaps the story into place then. I, I literally ran across the newsroom and back into the conference room where Ian and Carrie and this, this pile of documents were waiting and said he resigned. And just to give us a little bit of color, what did Vogie say about why he was resigning? Um, in his personal statement, he acknowledged that his conduct, and I'm quoting now, falls well below the personal and professional standards I have tried to uphold throughout my entire career, unquote. Um, and in the statement that came from the firm's executive committee, they acknowledged that uh, Mr. Vogie engaged in, and I'm quoting, uh, subsequent conduct, that's subsequent to the November texts, uh, related to this matter that, while not unlawful, the executive committee concluded was not befitting the leader of the firm. So it was clear that it was connected to this, this uh, dispute that we had been investigating for the week and a half leading up to his resignation. So one big question I have, Sam, is how this rose to the level of being a story we're writing about and that something that Latham really got into. Because on first blush, this is a woman who's not a client of the firm. She's not an employee. They have a consensual relationship. And even when it sours, it seems like a personal issue that's not related to the firm. How did this turn? Sure. I mean, I think that's something that we really grappled with when we were working on the story. And as the story was taking shape and we were reviewing these documents and we were trying to figure out, you know, at, at, at what point does this make the leap from being a, a purely personal matter, personal dispute between this man who happens to be the head of one of the world's largest law firms and this woman, um, and what point it becomes something more. I think if this were just a story about sexts, you know, it wouldn't have risen to the level of something that we would have written about. I think it's because of what Latham alludes to in its statement, this subsequent conduct. Right. Mm -hmm. That's something that I think these the interactions that Vogie had with the woman's husband in late January, where he says, she is going to jail. I'm coming to personally witness the arrest. Um, I think for us, that's the point when it became clear that this was something that we really needed to report on thoroughly and, and prudently and, and really uh, shed as much light on as we possibly could. 
So, Sam, in the vein of thoughtful coverage here, I just want to ask you about some of the fallout stories that have come out of this reporting. Uh, A lot of other outlets have sort of tried to tie this to the Me Too movement. What do you make of that? I think that, you know, I definitely recognize that there's this temptation or even maybe knee-jerk response to try to cast this in the the, the hashtag Me Too uh, mold. But I really don't think that this is I, don't, I really don't think that this is that kind of story. This is not a story of uh, workplace harassment. This is not a story of sexual harassment or sexual assault or anything of that nature. Um, it's something that is is much more unusual and I think needs to be taken on its own terms. You know, whether people are going to view it in the light of all these other stories of powerful men, I don't know. But I do think it's important to acknowledge that this is not a story in the, the Harvey Weinstein mold. Sam, thanks for coming on the show today to explain this. It's It's been a story we're all really proud of here at Law360 and good work on breaking it wide open. Thank you. Thanks for having me. the show with something offbeat. And guys, let's talk about Lindsay Lohan this week. Let's. Makes a lot of sense. She so, was setting the legal world on fire this week. She was. Um, if you didn't see it, I would recommend to all of our listeners to go to lawyer.com and check out her ads for that legal referral website. She's now their spokesperson. I do love the, the like the, just a brief aside, the idea of like, like, I need a lawyer. Where am I going? Lawyer.com. You beat me to well, it. That is a hilarious name for this service. You know what, guys? You should find it even funnier that there's two of them. There's Lawyer.com. There's also Lawyers.com. Whoa, hmm. So there's some competition there. But this one is the singular. Do they, have, do they have Hillary Duff as their spokesperson? <laughs> they really lawyers. should. Okay, yeah. um, so part of the reason this sort of caught fire this week and people really seized on it is that the ads are very cheesy, guys, okay. and they poke fun at her legal trouble. Nice. So that's sort of the, the in for her being the spokesperson. After meeting with the team, I realized Lawyer.com is just about helping people. From getting a DUI, let's not pretend like I didn't get one, or two, or three, or some others. It's so simple, and it's free. <laughs> yeah, that, that's pretty much the gist of it, guys. You know, people have to work. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to condescend. But no, I, I don't <laughs> quite remember what, what were her like legal travails? All in right. The, like... So for anybody who maybe doesn't remember her at all, she was a star starting in like the nineties when she was a kid, she was in like Disney movies. She yeah. was in the mm-hmm. parent trap, very wholesome. And like so many uh, young women of that era did, she turned and got into a lot of trouble as she became a, a teen in early twenties. Well, she didn't shave her head like Britney Spears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think she did, but here's things she did do. Starting in about 2007, she um, was arrested on multiple DUIs, misdemeanor cocaine use. I didn't know there was misdemeanor cocaine use. Yeah, right. Well, she was charged with it. Uh, She probably got a good lawyer at (laughs) lawyer.com. She skipped. Knocked that one down. Yeah, she skipped a bunch of court dates. She violated probation. She ended up in rehab at one point. Then later, even, I think she was in and out of some rehabs, but she stole a $2,500 necklace. She swiped. Not Call that one. the Winona. She swiped people <laughs> with her car on more than one occasion. So, do you think she was better or worse than Miley Cyrus? Because remember, <laughs> didn't she throw like a bong out the window at one point? I feel like I think Lindsay Lohan was pretty up there in terms of like the mischief she'd gotten sure. into. Um, what, so this went yeah. on for quite some time, many years, and then 
she uh, got a little older and she's in a bit of a rehabilitating her persona yeah. phase right now. I was just happy when I heard the commercial that she was using her regular voice again. Did you guys see that news item from a couple weeks ago that yeah. she had adopted some like Irish bro? Well, she it was one of those indeterminate It was one of those indeterminate like that sounds vaguely almost <laughs> foreign voices. Like yeah. it was one of those and she attributed it to a lot of her traveling, but just as another weird note about her, she lives in Dubai now. Which I only bring up in the context of the story, one, because of the weird accent, but she also, one of the lawyer.com videos is her in these like dune buggies on the sands in Dubai and then just like joking around about like how they just, they did this to let off steam after they filmed her lawyer.com clips. uh, She does a burnout on the dune. She's like, if you're not getting your royalty checks from Herbie Fully Loaded. (laughs) Go to lawyer.com. Yeah, it's basically that. I don't know if this is, or we, we said this is like a, she's like redeeming herself. If she's living in Dubai doing commercials for lawyers.com, yeah. I, I don't know who's she in debt to that she needs this, <laughs> like, a, what, what's uh, going on? I mean, in fairness to her, she's also on some British TV show right now. Okay. So she's doing some other stuff. So it's but not fully that she's not on just, the run. It's not just this. Yeah, <laughs> I think she's in, uh, I think it's called Sick Note or something like that. It's, huh. it's in the UK. But uh, this is really been interesting for the legal community just to see her joking around about her past. For her sake, I hope she remains a spokesperson for Lawyer.com and not a uh, not a customer. That'll wrap us up for today's show. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you guys. And Alex. Thanks. We'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest, Sam Reisman, and contributing reporter, Ben Kochman. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about today, especially Sam's big exclusive story, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks, and join us again next week.